0: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I'm not going to trick or treat you, and I have no intention of deceiving you, but this edition of Naked Reflections is devoted if not to ghouls and ghosts, then to magic thinking. It can be a trivial thing, of course, illusion and the sleight of hand, but it is also profound and seemingly deeply rooted in the human psyche. But is this a trait limited to human beings? The Cambridge University researcher, Eli Garcia-Pellegrin, is doing some work on whether animals are susceptible to magic like us.
2: What is magic, if not the violation of your own expectations, right? So if you were used to things levitating all the time, you wouldn't get amazed or surprised when a magician makes it levitate. And I think that's a good point of communality with animals. Magic can help us discern the expectations that animals have about the world around them. Do animals understand the rules of the world in the same way we understand the rules of the world? And magic sets an interesting precedent about this, because... Inherently, magic is the violation of the rules of the world. If things banished all the time, then banishing a coin wouldn't be a magic trick. So if animals get surprised by seeing a coin banished, then we know that they they understand that things are not supposed to disappear from nowhere.
0: That was Eli Garcia-Pellegrin speaking about some animal magic on a recent edition of the In Short series of Naked Scientist podcasts. With me to discuss magic thinking are Chris Gosden, Professor of European Archaeology at the University of Oxford and author of the magisterial tome The History of Magic from the Ice Age to the Present. And Mohammed Ahmed, a PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute who is researching the interaction of the Jews of Medina with early Islam and knows all about jinn and angelic beings. Is Eli's definition, Chris... A valid one? Or is he just talking about magic books?
3: I would make quite a distinction between magic tricks and what I might call real magic, as it were. Real magic has a seriousness equivalent to science, equivalent to religion. I think they're all very different. Um, And for me, magic is to do with human participation in the universe. So, To believe in magic, to practice magic, is to have an openness to the universe such that you believe your words can affect change in the world. Various actions which are not allowed for by science can make things different. And to be honest, I hadn't really thought about animals and magic. I would sort of think that animals don't have magic in the same way that we do. I, and one of the things I've reacted against in my writing is the notion that magic is some sort of primitive substrate that we as you know, modern rational beings have left behind. I think it's a healthy and important strand of human being, and one that we should not just explore historically, but celebrate a little bit as well.
0: So in a way, it's part of the human condition.
3: So I think there are three elements of the human condition, broadly speaking. They're not in any way mutually exclusive. They're different. So magic, as I said, for me is to do with participation and openness. We also feel open to the universe. We feel that the stars and moon and and planets can affect us. And then religion is a notion of transcendence. So we're thinking of something beyond the world, beyond the human which we call a single god or many gods, whereas science is an objective view or encourages an objective view, where we stand back and we try to think about the world in a more abstract way. And none of those precludes the other. I don't think we have to choose. And I think a a really healthy human life has aspects of participation, transcendence and, and objectivity.
0: But Muhammad, doesn't religion have a bit of a difficult relationship with magic? I mean, religion has sort of come to terms with science in many ways, but it hasn't really with magic, has it?
4: I think there's an interesting discussion to be had. I mean, before Pellegrin, we have Al-Ghazali, who was a very famous Islamic philosopher who tried to characterize and maybe differentiate between miracles and magic because Both supernatural phenomena are kind of obviously very similar or maybe perhaps in a a performative sense. And he describes the laws of God as the sunnah of God, the tradition of God, essentially, as all the laws that govern us. And it's when these laws are temporarily lifted by the creator that may look supernatural to us. But actually, if you look at God's power, it's not that difficult for him to do. So in that case, a miracle is nothing you know quite spectacular but whereas when it comes to magic and when it comes to supernatural from what the creation wants to do in this case it's an effort for the creation trying to override the traditions of God the laws of God that he has laid down and it's here that there's the problem there is no real way that that a human can actually achieve this but isn't there a
0: difference between miracle and and magic. I mean, people of faith are quite comfortable with the term miraculous. It was a miracle at Sinai. It was a miracle on the night journey of the prophet. It was a miracle of Jesus walking on water. But the faithful are less comfortable with the term magic. So when Jesus, for example, was accused of being a magician, it was a very negative thing. Yet aren't they similar? Aren't magic and miracles similar?
4: Yeah, I think it's the element of trickery that is involved in magic and the fact that it's not real quite a popular word in Arabic, the word to be crazy is majnoon, right? Majnoon means crazy. It comes from the word jinn or to be affected by jinn, because the ghayb is, is affecting you to a degree that, you know, you can experience the ghayb, no one else can experience it, so you're mental.
0: Chris, that, that sounds like there's a, a tension between the three different spheres of science, religion and magic, at least in the way that Muhammad's explained it to us.
3: I think Muhammad's characterization is a very accurate word. So I think one can separate these three elements, transcendence, participation and objectivity, but you don't want to get too bound up in sort of boundary disputes. They clearly all do swirl into each other. So Keith Thomas famously described the Catholic Church as an enormous mechanism for the production of magic. And of course, Protestantism's criticism of Catholicism was that it was too magical. There are separations there, but I don't think ultimately they can be separated. And the history of magic and the history of science, I mean, we wouldn't have chemistry without alchemy. We wouldn't have astronomy without astrology. There's a whole range of things that came out of the magical tradition and which we now are quite happy to call science.
0: Let's discuss a little bit about the Islamic concept of jinn because it predates Islam, doesn't it?
4: There are many theories um, about the kind of origin of jinn and, you know, where it originally comes from. And one of the most famous is that they were spirits that inhabited this vast desert that humans can never really truly comprehend the vast nature of the desert. And it was here that these kinds of myths and stories began. And, you know, obviously there are strange phenomena that do occur in the desert, uh, you know, from mirages. To you know, strange animals and nothingness. It's almost this that we start to see stories of jinn emerge in you know in the pre-Islamic period. If somebody is kind of lost in a desert and you do see a mirage or something that's there, but it's not really there, that is the you know fertile ground for this sort of development into conceptions of jinn.
0: What parallels are there between jinn and other faith traditions, particularly in the Middle East?
4: So we famously have the shadim in Judaism. And I think it would be nice to compare the description in the Talmud to the description in the Quran. So we have a nice kind of textual comparison. In the Talmud, the Shadim have wings like angels. They can fly and they can know the future. But they're not angelic. They are similar to humans that they eat and drink like humans. They multiply like humans and they die like humans. Now, if we compare that to the jinn in Islam, jinn's can also fly that the story of Solomon and the building of the first temple is in the Quran and they do try and ascertain the future there's a famous uh, parallel that Islam gives that you know jinns can try and kind of go to the heavens and listen to what god and the angels are are saying about the future and they try and listen and pick out things that they can ascertain and then they come back to the earth and tell it to soothsayers and people like that so there there is an element of jinns trying to know the future in Islam as well And of course, they they eat and drink like humans in Islam, they multiply like humans in Islam, and they die like humans in Islam. Chris, does that echo
0: with any of your own research? The history of magic, particularly interaction between angels and humans or jinn and the Shadim?
3: Medieval and early modern traditions in Europe were all about attempting to talk to angels and get a sense of the future or what happened in the past. The, The person who's being sort of rethought and rehabilitated is John Dee, the Elizabethan magician, and he and his sidekick, Edmund Kelly. Kelly claimed to be able to talk to angels. Um, You had to purify yourself in order to be able to commune with angels. Maybe you had to trap them in some very pure substance like a crystal. And the interesting thing about angels is it's quite hard to know what they're saying. So they need translation and interpretation. So angels won't speak to anyone and they won't speak to you directly. They need a series of interlocutors, which gives those interlocutors some power. So Elizabeth I, for instance, employed D to set the date of her coronation, um, one that would be cosmologically propitious, but also she tried to enlist more supernatural powers through D as the Spanish Armada turned up, um, Dee and Kelly got talking to the angels to see if they could work out strategies, which, you know, the Spanish
0: Armada didn't do all that well. so, So maybe these things work. Chris, are there important times for the appearance of magic?
3: Yes. Again, in different traditions, there are moments at which the worlds of the living and the worlds of the dead coincide or come closer. And yeah, the changeable bits of the year where you know, you go through the, the equinox and our uh, case, then maybe that's the time where the spirits come out. Uh, one of the things I really liked was um, the notion of revenants, the living dead, which was very prevalent at various different times in Europe, the 7th century and so on. There was a monk in Yorkshire, for instance, who after he was buried would walk around and, and obviously with bad intent. And other monks attacked him and embedded an axe in his leg, and later on they dug up the body, and the body did indeed have a fresh wound in its leg. So for people in the late Middle Ages and early modern periods, these were not fictions, they were things that could indeed happen.
0: I'll leave that thought in the listener's mind. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Chris Gosden and Mohammed Ahmed, and we're talking about magic thinking. In its simplest form, magic is associated with misleading people. And here's Eli Garcia-Pellegrin again.
2: Why would we evolve the ability to be perceptive? Mainly because we are social animals, right? And when I mean social, I don't only mean social in a way that we interact with our own, but social in a way that we also interact with other people that are not in our group and animals interact with other animals constantly that are not members of their own species. So the ability to be and to fool others, is part of living in that ecological environment.
0: Is magic thinking to do with this sort of wish for mutuality and connection? Because it strikes me from what you're saying, Chris, that it's about connection between these different spheres that makes sense of our world. That
3: is right at the heart of what I think magic is. And part of what's happened over the last few centuries, particularly in somewhere like Europe, is a great concentration on an unfeeling, unthinking universe which, which can be understood in terms of mass and force and those sorts of things, but not in terms of its sentience or our direct relationship with it. So someone like Max Weber, I mean, his definition of modernity was disenchantment, the loss of magic. And he saw that as both a positive thing that we were becoming more rational, but also that there was loss there, that we'd lost a sense of ourselves and a sense of our connection. And for me, one of the important things about rethinking magic is that it reconnects us to the world as a series of living entities, potentially. And it's like that, if we have a sort of open and ongoing relationship with it, then part of that relationship is a notion of care and of morality, and rather than just being able to exploit the world as we want, we have to think about how we want it to be passed down
0: to future generations. Mohammed, do you think the world is magical?
4: Well, uh, in in Islam, there's uh, a very strong concept of the ghaib, which is the unseen realm. Um, And it's essentially what is used to explain everything. The ghaib and the unseen realm has many things within it, for example, God, The concept of God, jinn, angels, and many such beings that perhaps humans aren't aware of or haven't been informed of. And this concept, the fact that it's unseen, means that you know human beings have, of course, a difficulty in rationalizing and understanding it. And so I think when we try and equate what is in the unseen to you know our normal minds, when we try and understand and rationalize things, it's very difficult, which is why kind of Islam gives a multiplicity of metaphors in this regard. So angels having wings, for example, do they actually have wings? Well, it's it's a metaphor and the ghayb is something we cannot truly understand. We cannot be able to understand because in Islam, there's a concept of a hijab, which means a veil upon the eyes and upon the ears and upon all of our senses because of the ghayb. So we are unable really to, to understand all of the supernatural, ethereal, transcendent things that are going on around us because of these veils that we have been born with. Probably the majority of creation is in the unseen, in Islam. And there's so much that, you know, God says, we've we've created so much that you don't know and that you won't be able to know uh, because we are so limited in this world. And even the soul of a human being, for example, is something that is the ghaib, it's in the unseen. We are not just our bodies. And it's this that, you know, will carry on into the next realm. So Islam definitely presents this dualistic vision and we're always surrounded by it. There's no way of escaping it.
0: Chris, some of the greatest scientists were also astrologers or alchemists. I mean, you mentioned the connection between alchemy and science or astrology and science. They were of interest to people like Newton and Kepler. Tell us a little bit more about that, and I wonder whether it's still true today. I mean If you interviewed some of the greatest scientists, would they be interested in alchemy and astrology?
3: Both very good questions. So Newton we tend to see as the originator of modern science in many of its guises. But Maynard Keynes said that Newton was not the first of the scientists. He was the last of the magicians. And that's after Maynard Keynes bought Newton's papers and gave them to Trinity College. And he had Two furnaces in his rooms in Trinity College. Be interesting to see how you get that past the Health and Safety Committee <laughs> in order to turn lead into gold. He also spent a lot of time on biblical prophecy and he was profoundly Christian, so he saw no antipathy, antigone between being scientific and Christian. And people, once this sort of hinterland of his thought was discovered. People thought it was some sort of eccentricity. But now people are more thinking that he was attempting the sort of equivalent of a grand theory of everything. So he could incorporate God, he could incorporate more miraculous transformations of the world, together with gravity, together with optics, together with the things, the laws of motion, the things that we would accept. So there wasn't a part of Newton's brain that thought magically and another part that thought scientifically. It was just the one brain and all these things were in there. The second element of your question about science today, I mean, I think there are elements of science. Certainly, I mean, I'm a humble archaeologist, so I know nothing about things like physics, although I'm extremely interested. And things like quantum mechanics confront common sense that you can have two particles that can occupy the same point in space at the same time. And there's a distinct possibility that observers affect the actions of the particles that they're observing. So a lot of people in the world who believe in magic believe in animism. They believe that the world is animate in some way. So, so if you said to an Aboriginal person, you know, you can affect the material nature of the world, they would say, yes, of course you know, sort of keep
0: up. I'm not sure what Einstein would say, but what would Al-Ghazali say? Wouldn't he be comfortable with this, Muhammad?
4: A great example was um, Abu Hanifa, who also was one of the great jurists of Islam. Somebody asked him, how can jinn be punished in hell? Because they are so similar to humans, they go to heaven and hell just like humans. How can jinn be punished in hell when they're created a fire? As the Quran declares that jinn are made of fire. And Abu Hanifa picks up a stone and throws it at the person. And the person says, you know, why did you throw a stone at me? And he says, well, you're made of clay, the earth, and I threw a bit of earth at you and it hurt you. And he said, they're very similar to us, but it's just because you can't comprehend something doesn't mean that it's not real. And I thought, you know, that that metaphor is quite apt in terms of us understanding this realm.
0: I can really see that. I can really see what you explained, because one of the great gifts of teachers or scientists or people of faith is to be able to explain the principle so that you can visualize it. Chris, of course, in your study, you came across, what can I say, a few wacky people, didn't you?
3: Yeah, there's a bit of wackiness out there. One element of magic, particularly relatively recently, is that it was countercultural. So it was really quite unpleasant people like Alistair Crowley, who styled himself as the beast, used magic to subvert middle class values, engaged in black magic, which probably itself has quite a, heritage back into the Middle Ages. And wackiness and inventiveness and creativity are, are often aligned. And in order to you know think new thoughts, you can't be totally... Conve- Einstein, who you mentioned before, was not totally conventional by any manner of means. And he had one of the most amazing sets of conceptions about the universe there's ever been. So again, I think, One of the things I like about magic is that it sets you free from some of the things that may hold us down. And I really liked Mohammed's phrase, just because you can't see something doesn't mean to say it's not there. And that's where magic is often taking us into the realm of the unseen, the initially unknown, and and what may seem slightly mad.
0: So tell us a little bit more about Alistair Crowley and his take on The Beast.
3: On his honeymoon in Cairo, he got a visitation from an ancient being who gave him a whole new philosophy, Iwas, and this new philosophy became the centre of his construction of the universe. And like many people, he became interested in ancient Egypt. And it's interesting why certain aspects of world culture become interesting to certain People the Egyptians seem to be magical in that that otherworldly.
0: Yes, because Egypt was famous as a place of magic in ancient times. It was known as the centre of magic. And Muhammad, I think you've looked into that, haven't you?
4: Absolutely. It's for this reason that Moses was sent with miracles that looked like they could transcend magic. I mean, for each kind of prophet, they had miracles that were more to do with their time. Jesus' miracles were more to do with medicine. And the Prophet Muhammad's miracles was more to do with literary Arabic and what the Arabs valued at that time. So, you know, in the time of Moses, I'm kind of linking it a bit maybe to wacky people. What we would consider to be wacky people are the magicians who threw their staffs that used to become snakes. And they challenged Moses. And Moses went and he threw his staff and it became a snake. And the magicians immediately prostrated and said, we believe in the Lord of Moses. From a performative perspective, it looked the same, essentially. I mean, a staff becoming a snake. But going back to al-Ghazali, what was actually going on there? The physicality of the staff had truly changed into a snake. It was a miracle. It was that lifting of God's law by God's own leave. Whereas what the magicians were doing, of course, was was more of a sleight of hand, was more of a, a trickery, essentially. And, you know, it was in this way that Moses was able to win them over. And I think that that's quite a little beautiful nugget of Moses in ancient Egypt.
0: To an extent, I wonder whether magic thinking tells us that humanity really can't bear too much reality.
3: Yes, I react against that notion that magic is an escape from reality. I think magic is an exploration of reality. And contained in that statement is the implicit assumption that something like science can tell us what reality is. And other forms of maybe religion, certainly magic, are attempting to escape. I think being magical is to throw yourself into reality in a way that is, you know, sort of whole body, whole soul. So I I would see it as the opposite of an escape from reality. And maybe it does you know, contradict some of the more brute and boring notions of what reality is. But I don't think that's, that's escapism. I think that's, that's brave exploration.
0: Mohammed, would you throw yourself into a kind of magical reality?
4: Absolutely. Like I said, the rave is, is all around us and there's no way really of escaping it. There's no way of truly understanding it either which is why I think the, you know, magic and and these sorts of things are so fascinating for people from different cultures, because they try and rationalise it in their own way, essentially. And this exploration that Chris is talking about, I think, is spot on. All cultures try and do it, all religions try and do it, and they do, to an extent, reach some level of truth.
0: Hey, Presto, that's all we've got time for. I'd like to thank my guests, my magical guests, Chris Gosden and Muhammad Ahmed. We'd like to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right. If you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back with more guests next week.